won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be radio. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Simpsons, Sibs, Captains, and Commanders, you've tuned to the guard frequency. And as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 106 of the best damn space sim podcast ever, and was recorded on Friday, February 5th, and made available for download Tuesday, February 9th over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Tony. And I'm Jace. Welcome back, Jace. Good to have you here. Lennon's not with us this week. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what we've got going? Well, in this week's Squawk Box, we discover how the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, literally has her finger on the pulse of the universe. On the flight deck, we see what news from your favorite space sims has landed as we cover the latest news from Star Citizen, new pricing structure and the Horizons roadmap in Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground's weekly update, and I gather Tony and Jeff's thoughts on electronic warfare and ship the ship hacking. This week, we strap Shiv into the sim pod as he reviews Descent Free Space. And finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. And that takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on to the show and see what's coming through the squawk box. Hey, you boys, need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Crypto, 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 this is Tony saying welcome to the squawk box, everyone. 2015 has come and gone, and with it, most of our hopes for the America, nay, the world that might have been, the one shown to us by Back to the Future. I still have to tie my own shoes, my pizza still has to be delivered to me full size, and I will never, ever get to have a fax machine in my hall closet. <sighs> Aside from the possible exception of the hoverboard, not one of Marty McFly's everyday conveniences has been invented. Let's be clear. I'm not blaming anyone, I just want explanations. For example, I think I know why we don't have a Mr. Fusion in every home yet. I wonder, gentle listeners, if you questioned, as I did, the need for an internal combustion engine when you have a frickin' fusion reactor strapped to the back of your DeLorean. The answer may be in the design of that fictional appliance. For the past 50 years, most fusion research has been largely focused around the tokamak design. Picture a large donut made of magnets, which create fields that compress and hold plasma in the center of the doughy part. Then, shoot a bolt of lightning through the plasma and hope that, one, you make the plasma hot enough to start a fusion reaction, two, the magnets keep the 100 million degrees Celsius plasma away from the inner surface of the donut, and three, you can shoot another bolt of lightning through there pretty soon to keep the reaction going. Sounds complicated, right? Well, turns out that it really is. In the 1960s, tokamak seemed like the most promising design because the other designs required massive amounts of computer time in order to crunch the numbers needed to design the crazy shapes that those magnetic fields would have to take in order to contain and sustain a fusion reaction. Well, guess what field has really taken off in the last 50 years? Go on, guess. Uh, something near and dear to my heart? <laughs> oh, oh, time's up, Jeff, but I'll go ahead and tell you computers. Near and dear to my heart. Uh, yeah. Yeah, go figure. Well, back in the late 50s, work on the Stellarator design was moving along swimmingly until the Tokamak stole all the thunder. Well, it's back. If the Tokamak is like a donut, picture a Mobius strip-shaped apple fritter, then drop a tab of E and spin yourself on a merry-go-round really fast. That's a Stellarator. 
leave it to the Germans to build something that crazy, which of course they did. Last week, Chancellor Angela Merkel hit the button that created the first hydrogen plasma in the coils of the Wendelstein 7 Exxon nuclear holzen fusion machine in Mitzi Max Planck Institute per Plasma Physik. I only made part of that up. Uh, over the next four years, scientists will gradually increase the temperature inside the device and hope to achieve 30 minutes of constant fusion reactions. If successful, the data gathered should help design an actual reactor with a net positive energy output. So, Doc Brown's mistake? He should have used a BMW. DeLoreans didn't last long. BMWs, they're still driving around, right? Yeah. Hello. And they never changed their model numbers, right? <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. They're, well, they all start with, they're all hundreds, you know, 300s and 500 and 700s. But I think we should make sure that uh, we never put one of these in a the Volkswagen because it'll turn out as actually a fission device. Oh. Too soon? Too soon out there, Volkswagen drivers? Oh, I hope not. It is funny, but, though, that DeLorean just uh, released a strange ad this week uh, implying that they're coming back into production. Maybe they do have fusion reactors on the back, strapped to the back of them now. That'd so be this, sweet. This could be dovetailing into some really exciting news. That really could. We're going to keep an eye on this for sure. But, uh, you know, we had going for a while, like, one of those checklists, you know, like, for building an actual spaceship. We covered, like, the Vasimir ion thrusters. Okay, mm-hmm. ion thrusters, check. We need one of those for spaceships. Some technology for tractor beams. Okay, check. Lasers, check. Rail guns, check. You know, fusion reactor. We haven't been able to put a check mark on that one yet, so... Four years closer, right? I mean, they say the next four years they ought to have enough to sustain fusion reactions for 30 minutes. Have you read, seen, or heard something you think might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for January 29, 2016, 107,580,000, up about 700,000, 1.255 million registered accounts, up about 15,000, and 913,000 ships in the UEE fleet, up about 13,000. Well, the lack of groundbreaking announcements from CIG continues, probably due to a lot of PAX South attendance. In fact, things were so quiet, we actually had to delve into the reverse the verse for news items. Here's a quick rundown of interesting news bits from the various CIG community sources. Eventually, the time to kill for multi-crew ships will be increased so that crew may actually have time to try repairing something when that mechanic comes online. Great news for everyone who's ever had fantasies of running through the corridors of their ship whilst sparks fly all around them, yelling things like coolant leak and reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. The generic use interaction will eventually be contextual, and in certain cases have more than one option. For example, doors could potentially see the use be replaced with lock or open. Due to system constraints, it's unlikely that a character or face designer will be available outside the game. The free fly, well, no longer a weekend. Whatever it is, it's been extended to the 14th. If you have friends that have been on the fence about trying Star Citizen, now's the time to ruin their lives. There's a new interceptor-type ship being designed, the Drake Monarch. Lennon's already said this is on his shopping list, despite having no details for no other reason than its name is effectively Dragon Queen. The pricing for the separate game modules has been confirmed. After the 14th, Star Citizen and Squadron 42 will each cost $45. However, if you purchase both together, there is a package deal for $60. If you're struggling for that ideal gift for Valentine's Day, now you've found it. Trust me. I'm a disembodied voice on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, but you sound pretty trustworthy. I appreciate that. 
Well, you know, again, they talked about the uh, pricing model and in reverse the verse. And, you know, we talked about a little bit last week. And I I guess there's still quite a number of people who don't quite get that it's new and it's not going to affect previous backers at all. Because I've seen a lot of angst and a lot of posts about it. And if you backed or have a game package, Star Citizens, it's not going to affect you. Okay. Yeah, I think the only way it affects you is, like as we discussed last week, and we beat it to death, if there's internal choices about where to put resources, Squadron 42 is going to get them for right now. The Persistent Universe is not. As far as the pricing model goes, there's nothing terribly objectionable about it. I mean, 60 bucks uh, for the combined game is right in line with what you'd pay for other new release That's games. correct. We could get into the fact that there is not yet a game to be released yet, so it's a $60 pre-order, essentially. I, you know, for all the quibbling that I did last week about it, it's just it, 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 they've made a decision that they want to change the revenue model a little bit. They want to change people's expectations a little bit. That's fine. I still have my login. My login will work for both Squadron 42 and Star Citizen when it comes online. They're just changing with the times. Frontier made some changes this week to address the confusion many newcomers have had when purchasing Elite and Horizons. Horizons will be treated from here on as a Season Pass DLC rather than its own product, which will also fold the Steam communities currently divided between the base game and Horizons back together into a single hub. There will now be three purchase options, Elite Dangerous, the base game, Horizon Season Pass adding access to all Horizon content, and Elite Dangerous Deluxe Edition, including the base game, Horizons, and a Pilot Starter Pack also now available separately in the store. The Pilot Starter Pack contains the Sidewinder Military Paint Jobs, Eagle Tactical Paint Jobs, and a Male Pilot Bobblehead. Cool. These changes also mark the end of the loyalty discount for existing players buying Horizons. However, they also kicked off the new pricing scheme with a sale for the week. Finally, all players who purchased Horizons before this change will receive a new gold paint job for the Asp Explorer. This week also saw the release of Horizons Roadmap, revealing the order and rough timetable in which we could expect the rest of the planned content updates for Elite this year. In addition to 2.0, Planetary Landings, which launched Horizons, we can also expect the following. In 2.1, The Engineers, this spring, with expanded missions, loot, and crafting. 2.2, Guardians, this summer, adding ship-launched fighters. 2.3, The Commanders, in the fall, bringing both character customization and multi-crew functionality. And 2.4, which remains shrouded in mystery, a secret to be revealed in Elite Dangerous Horizons Final Expansion. I noticed they didn't say anything about the lip tip holders, you know, the lifetime expansion pass holders in this thing, which I'm a proud member of for Elite. I don't know what this means for my my loyalty bonus or anything else in here but i don't think uh, it changes anything for uh lifetime expansion pass holders we just get whatever comes out when it comes out right they're just changing how they market it basically to new players yeah right but i get a, a discount for other purchases besides the expansion passes because of my loyalty you know with paint jobs and other things as well so I doubt any of that changed. Uh, it, it changed for me because I don't have the. I, I didn't buy the lifetime pass or whatever. But as soon as I saw this, I immediately went out and bought the season pass. I've been on the fence for for a while. And actually, to, this is funny. 
last night, I actually was going to be like, eh, I'll just go ahead and get it. And I logged into the Elite Dangerous store, and I accidentally hit the credit card button instead of the PayPal button. So, ah, crap. So I had to, like, back it up. I had to go back, and it logged me out, and it was, did something weird. And then I went, ugh, never mind, and I just quit. And then the next very next day, I wake up to this announcement, and I'm like, oh, sweet. I just saved 15 bucks oh. and did it this way instead. Uh, so, yeah, this is I, – I, I said last week, you know, they, they need to – fold in the elite dangerous horizons into whatever things they do next you know make that people with their guinea pigs this is better make it slightly cheaper and just make it where people can opt in or opt out whenever they feel like it so i i, I like this plan this is this uh, this is a good pricing move i think as far as uh, keeping the community together goes and it was really easy for me because as soon as i bought it i just closed my launcher restarted the launcher and the game was ready to go all the guts of horizons is already in the base game. There's nothing else to download. It just enables it. So good design, good execution. It was really easy for me, the end user. Just seemed to work. Oh, excellent. So, Tony, now you're up to speed with the rest of us. And so does that mean I get to bring you out to I am. QBO and, and and train you on ground missions? That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the nugget. I'm the, I'm the rook. <laughs> Perfect. I think this change is especially good for Steam users because it was very confusing when Horizons first came out. You had to use the standalone launcher at first, and then Horizons was a separate listing on Steam, and that's caused issues with reviews and the community, and I I just think this will be huge, a big improvement for Frontier and for the players. Let's face it here. I mean, Elite didn't originally come out on Steam, and I think their implementation into getting it into Steam was a bit backward anyway. I really can't blame either one of them. I just, uh, and, and this model, I think Steam has some controls there that, you know, when you bring a game in and you have, and, and, and upgrade or updates or DLCs that you do it a certain way and they weren't quite ready to do that yet, but they wanted to get the Steam people on and, and so on and so forth. So I, I am not sure that it was Elite's fault so much, but I just think it was that they jumped onto Steam. And well, I I've never launched Elite through Steam. I never have well, either. I but I've always used a standalone standalone launcher, and it's still it was weird even before it was weird. I've got the 32-bit version of the game. I've got the 64-bit version of the game, and then I had the training tutorial version of the game, and I had to pick one of those before I could launch. Well, and I don't even have Horizons. So as somebody who hadn't purchased Horizons but knew it was out there. It was like, what am I gonna have a fourth thing now? What's, I mean, it's just, it just didn't, it just was weird, right? It just have, it's weird to have so many different versions of the same game. Now, don't, don't even talk about uh, close quarters combat and Xbox, right? So, how many different doorways and gateways and and choke points and what's gonna be? And then now, with how they've laid out this plan for the rest of the year, you know, engineers and 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 fighters and all this, are you you're gonna gate this to the people that just have Horizons? Or are you going to gate it to people that have Horizons or, or just a 64-bit version or Xbox? I mean, calling Horizons something that fits in a nice box on Steam, DLC. Oh, okay. I know what DLC is. Everybody knows what DLC is. If you buy it, you can use it. Okay, that makes sense to people. And I, I think that's a good strategy going forward. It sets people's expectations for Season 3 and 4 as well. People that don't have the lifetime pass, if I want what comes next, I'm going to have to pay for Season 3. It sets my expectations. I think that's smart. I'm very curious about their multi-crew because obviously that's a big 
balance point between elite and star citizen in my mind mm-hmm. uh, multi-crew for me is a game changer although some people are like why do you even care why wouldn't you just have two people in two ships that's way better than having two people in one ship which i don't i don't get i mean i want to have that experience of playing a larger ship and having the crew and like we talked about earlier with star citizen running down the corridors yeah yeah i i, I think if they can implement it in a way that's compelling, meaning that for some people they will prefer to have a co-pilot or a crew, that would be good. Um, it would be a major selling point for people to get those uh, season packs and, and download and DLC packs if they make gameplay changes that are compelling. But like I said, Jace, if it's just if it makes more sense from a gameplay perspective to just have a wingman rather than a co-pilot. You know, it's not it's not a game changer and it will discourage people from getting further expansions. Right. I mean, if all the extra person can really do is man a turret or pilot a, a light fighter, it may not make sense. But we'll see. And I'm questioning this direction, too, because we constantly compare Star Citizen and Elite Dangerous. And, and they're uncomparable. I mean, they're both space sims to some degree. But I don't think these two need to be competitive. I don't think they need the same functions or functionality. I am looking forward to the fact that I can get up out of my pilot seat, walk around the space station, but I don't know that I need a multi-crewed ship in Elite. Uh, I'm perfectly happy with having an NPC doing some, you know, just, you know, kind of fakely pushing buttons and and doing other things yeah. or, you know, in my Clipper, for example, which has a empty second seat there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I can fly the ship with an empty second seat and do it well... Why do I need to have another body there? They have to make it compelling. And I think that you make a good point that there's some contrast between Elite Dangerous and Star Citizen that kind of get lost in the shuffle of the features that both of them are going to have in common. The Star Citizen universe is a theme park, and the Elite Dangerous world is a sandbox. The Elite Dangerous is a procedurally generated universe that simulates all the stars in the galaxy. Star Citizen is going to be a sort of handcrafted an artisanal experience, if you will. You know, they're going to have handcrafted, uh, you know, uh, space stations and things like that, that you can go visit. I mean, a hundred star systems versus hundreds of thousands in Elite. And they're going to be brought a lot more to life because, like you're saying, Jeff, you're going to get out of your spaceships and go to different environments. In Elite Dangerous, there's really two environments now, space and airless planet surfaces. So the gameplay is different for both of those two games. And even though they may have some overlapping feature sets, the environments in which you exercise those feature sets are very different. I will say that Elite would benefit from more things that give a good reason for people to form a group or form a wing. So if multi-crew enhances that, I think it'll be a plus for the game. I think some of the features they really need to consider are things like organizations and maybe um, space station ownership and and things of that nature rather than focusing on multi-crewed ships. I really think that that's where they're going, Jeff. I really do. You know, season four, season five kind of a thing. I mean, look at Star Trek online, our sort of lingua franca. They did star bases, but they waited till they had the game play sort of worked out a little bit better. And then they gave the fleets something to do. Here... You know, let's let's not forget what a pain wings were when they first came out. They did not work, <laughs> period. They just didn't work. They got better quickly, but they didn't work. 
And so now that we have wings, as Jay was saying, we don't have much to do with wings. I mean, there's not a lot of reason to make one other than just, you know, don't steal each other's bounties in those in the hazardous zones. I mean, that's maybe the only reason. But then you go multi-crew, and all of a sudden, you're not limited to just four people playing together now. Now you might be able to do eight or 12, depending on how many crew you can have on your ships. Now you're starting to get to org-sized stuff. Now you can have a, a, a decent-sized org, say, you know, a dozen people, and they can do something together. And if you get bigger, you know, maybe then you can go into three different instances, right? So you, now you've got 30 or 40 people. I think they're headed that way. I just don't think they're anywhere near ready to do it yet. And they've got to build the tech foundation first, make sure it works, make sure they don't have another wings debacle like they did at the very beginning of, of the wings rollout, and then give people reasons to have those larger organizations. News is coming in thick and fast from Descendant Studios these days. The team have released their weekly roundup with some tantalizing new tidbits that we can look forward to very soon. Firstly, mining is set to make an appearance in the not-too-distant but still further than we'd probably like future, as they look to expand the number of roles available to players. Secondly, a new defensive gadget will be pushed to the Proving Grounds next week, and while it might sound like something we just sort of made up in Squawk Box or a prelude sketch, we swear this is the actual name, the Discombobulating Diffusion Defense, a.k.a. the Triple D. Yes, the joke's right there, not only the weird name, but uh, we here at Guard Frequency know that our audience is a classy bunch, rather highbrow, if you will, so we're not going to touch it. After all, if you touch it, hey, come on, you know, come on, seriously, who writes this copy? No, no, we're not, I'm not going there. Moving on. Uh, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that Descendant Studios were releasing their white boxing kit, allowing fans to create their own levels, which could then be shared with the community. Well, there were a few that Wingman and company enjoyed so much that they're currently in internal testing for including in the final game. Bear in mind, these levels are effectively in gray box at the moment, so final art is still to come. Well, that's pretty cool, opening it up to some modding-style activity oh, yeah. before the game's even launched. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. I think it's a, it's a fantastic move. You know, it's it's even the next step further beyond crowdfunding open development. This is like participatory open development. Help us make the game, you know, throw some stuff out there. And again, like with Star Citizen and they did the, the next great starship those many moons ago, if you can get a pipeline going, learn from this process as you these user-submitted maps go in there, Learn from this process and make it into a regular thing so that even after the game goes live, people have access to your something akin to your internal tools to make these maps and have a process by which they can be included into the game. And people can pay 99 cents to download them and they get a share and the company gets a share. That's the sort of thing that will sustain an enthusiastic and engaged fan base for a long time. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm a, I'm a big fan of user mods. Even in the early Space Sim Jumpgate, which mm -hmm. was a MMO and, and, you know, 2000 era, they allowed people to make their own HUDs. It became very popular, and, you know, there was even a contest to see who, had, who can make the best HUD, and, and uh, I tell you, it was used for years. So, I, yeah. I, I like, I like uh, third-party mods. I really do. Yeah, and if, if, if you can make a model in which your enthusiastic players become contributors and get compensated for those contributions. You know, if you're going to build a microtransaction store anyway, why not have a, a way to include those contributions from your fans? I think, like I said, if you, if you bake it in early in the process and work the kinks out before you release it to the big world, which I hope Descendant Studios is doing because I think it's a great idea and a good model. And I hope to see you know other crowdfunded and open platform, open development games go this way. I hope they really take this bull by the horns and go with it because I think it could really 
put a solid footing for a, a long-term fan base. If people know that there are community people out there supporting the game and creating new content, new playable maps for the game, I think that's just going to attract more people to it who know that, hey, I'm going to spend 30 bucks on this thing, but I'm going to get years worth of use out of it. I think that's a really good thing. I agree it, to some extent in today's modern games, especially in games like Elite Dangerous and Star Citizen, where there's not really a lot of things you want people to mod. Maybe the HUD, but I think I think they can put in tools where you can in-game where you can modify that. Where I really think these games will shine is if they were to code in the APIs and release APIs to the third-party people that want to program market data or ship controls into a separate you know tablet or something. This is where I think today's modern games can take a real benefit from the modding community by allowing you know these APIs to get back into their game and into your you know your inventory your mission boards you know that kind of stuff my Moby glass on my little you know HP stream 8 over here or you know that kind of thing that's where I think this will really take off and now it's time for news we didn't use Two new patches for Evercon Legacy is out now. Links in the show notes. Pulsar Lost Colony patch beta 6.2 is out. You can no longer sprint in a turret. Sad face. Elite Dangerous teased mission contact details in 2.1 and more huge weapons. So the last couple of weeks, we had a debate that seemed to be mildly successful. And we here at Guard Frequency not only know a good thing when we see it, but we also know how to milk something until it's dry. So, gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate for us electronic warfare. I will give you each 30 seconds to present your case and then a further 30 seconds to reply. As the result of a coin flip, Tony is up first and Jeff is second. So, Tony, tell me. What is so great about Electronic Warfare? Jace, what's great about Electronic Warfare is that it adds a further dimension to the gameplay. We're simulating universes here. We're in futuristic environments where computers rule a lot of stuff. We don't have drones flying these things, but we have humans helping the drones in our machines. The Electronic Warfare is definitely something that will be in the future of space travel, and it's good to have it in our games. Very good. Now, Jeff, tell us why Tony's wrong. Tony, you ignorant slut. If you can understand that the time and presence that you need to have to set up electronic warfare, why, I'll just blow you out of the sky. Really, the only reason electronic warfare actually works is if you are you can sneak in during a big fleet battle or action that, you know, nobody really notices you. All right, and Tony with the rebuttal. Jeff, I, I get your point is that electronic warfare is only typically effective in a larger order of battle. But again, if you have these large open universes with many participating players in it, there should be some room for that. And even in a single seat fighter, you're going to have to have somebody who's there to manage your electronic defenses. Maybe not electronic offenses, but you have to be able to defend yourself as well. And Jeff, any final comments? Tony, you ignorant slut. 
if you could understand the time it takes to set up electronic warfare, why well, I can't even find a friend to come shoot hostiles with me half the time, let alone find a second seat for my reel to set up uh, electronic little widgets that really, I got nothing here. <laughs> 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 All right, gentlemen, you both make incredibly compelling cases. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we both sort of agree that electronic warfare is good, yeah. but Jeff's point is... See, uh, uh, go ahead. I mean, go ahead and tell, tell everybody about the pre-production talk we had, too. Well, I, I'm not against electronic warfare. I think it's a great aspect of the game and stuff, but really, the only really effective way to make it work is if, like I said, if you're in a big battle of some kind where... They're not focused on the ECCM people. They're more focused on the people that are doing them damage. And if you're a single player trying to hack another single player, the time it takes to break through, or I'm hoping that this system, I mean, it'll take some time. It's not, you know, instant win button. You're going to get blown out of the sky. We, I've often referred to Elite Dangerous as a series of mini games, right? You know, the, a bunch of different mini games that you put all together turns into one big game. Having an electronic warfare mini game is fine and good, but if it becomes the only game, you know, like Jeff said, an instant win button, that's a problem. If I don't have a second seater, or if I didn't buy the right module before I left the base and someone else can just sort of, you know, hit a button and win, that's not any fun. And you got to balance that against the people that have invested the time and effort to get good at that mini game and really enjoy it and want to use it. It's a really difficult balancing act if you're not just making it for, like Jeff said, the dedicated fleet action. You know, if you're going to let people use that sort of mini game anywhere and on any level ship or whatever, it's going to be a real tricky balancing act against the people that are just out there to fly around and blow stuff up. Now, I'll be the first one to volunteer for the ECCM role when there's a big fleet action going on. So, yeah, I'm going to, you know, learn all I can about it because I really like the, the idea. But I'm not going to be out there flying uh, rescue missions trying to, you know, <laughs> shut people down while I'm yeah. <laughs> trying to rescue somebody. Yeah, it's going to be hard for people to sort of define the user environment for when having a, a e, an ECM or an ECCM minigame is appropriate to play. That's that's going to be tough. But, you know, if they can pull it off, then awesome. The only thing I really have to add is that I don't really know a lot about the concept of electronic warfare, so I don't really know where it would fit in. To me, it feels like it might end up being one of those things that is another complication that is not related to the core gameplay that I'm interested in, but that I have to keep in mind when I'm planning my build or my loadout. Well, I I can give you a a real quick example. Uh, Let's take modern air combat. So you've got a couple of ECCM Blackhawks, you know, geared up. They fly in low and they generate a scrambling signal, for example, that might scramble local SAM sites from being able to target the the actual attack aircraft that's coming behind you to, you know, strike this area. Those are the kinds of things that are combat-related. Right. In principle, you know, think of a radar station as somebody swiping a searchlight around a big swath of sky hoping to get a reflection off of a plane, you know, just just a, just a light in the sky pointing out there. And, of course, it's dark out and the planes are painted black, and so you're just hoping to get a glint off of something, right? And then some jerk comes with a gigantic spotlight in the sky and just shines it right in your face. So you're waving around your spotlight trying to get a glint of something, and there's a big freaking spotlight it's so huge in the sky you can't even see the where the middle of it is right just so huge and bright and blinding that's basically in its simplest form electronic 
warfare. Those signals would put out just swamp any kind of return that uh, a radar operator could hope to get. So that would be the most basic concept what an electronic warfare you know you'd, you'd be flying around trying to get a contact on your radar screen all of a sudden your radar screen just turns white because it's just too much stuff coming in they can't pick out signals in the background so you'd have to rely on visual contact to, to pick out your targets if it were kept to that level like i can screw with your radar i don't suppose it would be too bad but then there's always you know you, you could counter that you can dial in your your sensitivity finer maybe you uh can burn what's called burning through the jamming you just up your radar's power so much that your your spotlight gets super powerful so i mean you, you get you can go down a rabbit hole of uh of the warhead versus the armor really quickly and all your ships that you fly have some type of electronic countermeasures already and that's you know simply by turning your power off for example right. which silent would, running would cut mm-hmm. your electronic signature or shutting everything down and hiding behind an asteroid or some other larger structure is another kind of countermeasure yeah so i mean it's kind of already there but it might introduce a degree of complication that would have to be balanced for in the sort of single player environment rather than a big fleet action Well, that brings us to this week's community question. Firewalls, hacking the net, backtracing it. Is this an interesting gameplay mechanic or just something that gets in the way of the pew-pew? Let us know your thoughts. Send us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post on over at our show thread at guardfrequency.com. And now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's strap Shiv into the SimPod as he reviews Descent Free Space. Rugger to bridge. If you need me, I'll be at holodeck Welcome to the SimPod. I'm Kenna, here in the absence of the Shiv. He's suffering from a great affliction, the common cold. Sniffles, a tiny cough, and a nose sore from the relentless onslaught of tissues. Please join together with me to send all the good vibrations to the Shiv for his fast and safe recovery. Despite his horrific malady, however, he was able to muster the strength to scribble out his Descent Free Space SimPod review, while huddled under the protective embrace of his bedsheets. I will be reading it for you today. Descent Free Space is a 1998 space combat game from Volition Inc. Despite its name, it's not set in the Descent fiction and only shares a small portion of Descent's code. The Descent name was affixed to the game to differentiate it from a discompression utility named Free Space. We wouldn't want someone being upset that, despite defeating all the bad guys, they didn't manage to free up hard drive space. The core story is of a war between the Terrans and the alien Vesudans, but when a third threat appears, the two must work together to both survive. Now, I've had quite the fight with the game to play it, but despite the technical hurdles, I've been having a good time. The game starts with a cutscene which sets the stage for the game, then a tutorial to get you used to the controls, which was the keypad in my case, but I'll get to that later. After a few tutorial missions in which shooting at the instructor is not allowed, you get to the first real mission. There are other tutorials that show up later, but can be skipped. I was confused when this happened the first time and skipped it. I may go back to see what I missed. There are lots of options in the game, Knowing what they are will help. The missions so far are generally short in length, but are varied and interesting. From combat space patrol to interception to seizing enemy territory, the missions are well-paced and involve lots of exploding bad guys. The pace of the voice could be better in the briefings. It sounds like voice clips being played with pauses in between. But back to the technical issues. It runs in 640 by 480, kids ask your parents, and I cannot get it to work in a window. This means my desktop gets smashed together. If I use the mouse, I bring up the start bar. I can't get my joystick to work. I didn't even try the Steam controller at this point. So I'm using the keypad for flight and carefully using the mouse in menus. 
If I manage to minimize the game, it crashes, losing all progress. Despite all this, I'm invested in the story already, and choices I've made have had an effect on the outcome, such as capturing instead of killing a ship. I don't believe they're branching storylines, but it's nice to know that if I miss an optional ship, it can appear later, but won't if I blast it to smithereens. The short mission time and the fun gameplay, despite the problems, means I'll be trying to finish this game. Well, that was all the ship was able to do before he cried out for water from his pillow, relying on the kindness of his wonderful family to survive the tribulation. Simulant signing out. Let's tune in to the feedback loop and hear what you have to say. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendly! So let's just be friendly! Some say he managed to set mac and cheese on fire while cooking, and he only has nine fingers after a hot dog eating contest. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he'll put together this week's feedback. Single player or multiplayer space sims, can you have a living, breathing universe while playing solo, or does it need that unpredictable human touch? Sean Newboy whipped together these two comments like peanut butter and chocolate. Love the episode, and the debates are stellar. I'm looking forward to Squadron 42, but I really, really want Star Citizen. I prefer the feel of a universe filled with other people. Shiv poured the Amontillado into a pot and simmered for some time to make a reduction, and yielded this result. Yes, you can have a living, breathing universe populated by NPCs in a solo game. Other players can add an extra dimension to and greatly enhance the reality of the setting. A shared story or experience has a degree of reality that can't be obtained by oneself. Downside is, not all players have the same notions on the life of the setting as others have. To some, it may be a video game with no reality beyond the game mechanics. Others will create their own lore and background to suit their needs, while still others will adhere strictly to the published lore. This mishmash of preferences can really detract from the cohesive, designed setting created and realized by the professionals tasked to do so. A well-implemented NPC will represent the setting it was intended and can offer up a more cohesive, if not more dynamic, experience. Armontiado continues on with another topic. I'd like to address the separation of Squadron 42 and the Star Citizen products. Squadron 42 and the Persistent Universe, along with the private servers, were there from the get-go. The Mega Project is a successor of both Wing Commander and Privateer Freelancer. This is how it was presented in the original pitch video, and this is how I've always understood it to be. That said, Squadron 42 and the Star Citizen are being billed as two full AAA games. I don't feel it's cheesy in the least bit that they should be charged for as such. I'm surprised that it's taken this long. I think we may have become too accustomed to the displays of generosity from CIG in this regard, and I applaud the move. I would like CIG to promote the sale of the game products more than the sale of the virtual ships and we can all earn for free in-game. Everyone should be able to understand Squadron 42 as being a separate product and being charged for as such. Mike Foley seasons the feedback with, X2 The Threat was a great space game that kept me busy for months. All the time playing it though, I wished it had co-op. My friend and I could have taken over sectors and established an empire. I did it on my own eventually, but after that it got boring. X3 Reunion was the same, but prettier. If they had made it into a server-based multiplayer for around five players, it would have been huge. Kenna adds a dash of, Personally, I prefer predictable human touch. Unpredictable human touch is kind of creepy and scary. Tectura garnished it with, As your own outro says, If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Longscope increased the batch size with, I think it can be done, but it's difficult to simulate human choices. Humans are completely unpredictable. 
Yeah, so I, it seems that the, the great way to the feedback uh, is that people want to have a filled universe filled with actual other players. That's good in an MMO, but I don't know, a space sim MMO, I don't know. Still, I'm glad there's two separate products, though. I mean, there's a storyline campaign where you get to be the super-duper hero, and then you can be the not-so-awesome guy in the MMO. It's tough to make people feel like they're awesome in a skill-based MMO when you actually suck. <laughs> I think that's that's a big part of it. When you're in an MMO environment and you have leveled up to 80 and you can destroy swaths of rats or TIE fighters or whatever it is that you know you fight in those games with the click of a mouse because you are awesome because you've spent the time and you've got all the gadgets, You know that's how you get, keep people logging in because they get a big freaking ego boost every time they do. Haha, ha, king of the world. But you spend a lot of money and a lot of time in a skill-based game, and then you go out there and you get your butt handed to you as soon as you clear space dock. Well, you're going to have a harder time getting those people to log in. So it's a tough balancing act, I think, in an MMO environment. It's a skill-based input. Personally, I prefer to at least have the option of a co-op or multiplayer mode in almost everything. I'm glad that we're going to have the campaign of Squadron 42, but I do feel like what they have slated for co-op in that with sort of repeatable historical missions is not entirely what I expected or what was implied earlier in development, but it probably turned out to be overcomplicated. And I know you guys discussed this previously, but in any case, it still works out the same. We'll have the option of multiplayer or single player between the two game modes, at least. As long as you pay your 60 bucks now, can't just get it for one anymore. And general feedback, Descendant Studios adds to the goulash, thank you for the shout-out, Edgard Freak. Y'all do good work. Aw, thanks, guys. Splice Point from the Data Spike podcast seeps the grains for the flavor of... Guard Frequency produces a great show. Encourage any of our listeners to see if you can fit them into your podcast rotation. No new Patreon subscribers this week, but the winner of a brand new patch is... 8-Bit Fungus. Hi, this is Spectrum Personality, Carrie Kerrigan, with a super special prize announcement for everyone who's made it all the way to the end of the show. Paul Watson from HCS Voice Packs has generously given us some codes to unlock a little crew for the theater of your mind. And Gary Magenheimer from Voice Attack is kicking in a free copy of his software to bring those characters to life. All you have to do to be eligible to win this fabulous prize is favorite and retweet our tweets. We'll draw two names each week for three weeks. Winners will receive the voices of Astra, Dark, Leo, voiced by Norman Lovett, who you may know as Holly from Red Dwarf, and the ship's cat, as well as a free copy of Voice Attack to power them all up. Follow at GuardFreak on Twitter and watch for a tweet from us mentioning at Voice Packs and at Voice Attack. This week's winners are... W. Smith 50 and... <laughs> yeah, we gave the to Oh, you asses. Okay. Hey, Wally. That's right. I got Holo, Wallo, Wallo, Wallo. Send us a message. <laughs> Send us an email containing your first and last name before episode 107 is released, and we'll get you your prizes. And a reminder of this week's community question, Firewalls, hacking the net and backtracing it. An interesting gameplay mechanic or just something that gets in the way of the pew-pew? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post on our show thread over at guardfrequency.com. So how is the show? Seasoned and baked to perfection or bland and maybe a little undercooked? Uh, either way, let us know. Here's some ways you can get in touch with us. 
why not leave a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? You can hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. Or if you're old school like us, shoot us an email at squawk at guardfrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us are found in the show notes. Your feedback's an important part of what we do, so take a minute. Tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 106 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 107 on February 16th, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website, guardfrequency.com. But that's not all! You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 11 p.m. Central. That's Saturdays at 5 a.m. GMT. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. You can also support the show by visiting our website, guardfrequency.com, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For only $1.25, you get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our patrons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope you consider making a regular contribution. The more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call sign section for details on how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out over at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin, the puns awaken Lowmaster, our artist, Ben Sanders and Simon Chorlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jeff Grant, and our audio engineer, Michael Duncan. Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce thrust. Time to 330, count 15. Squawk 7700. Stay on the guard. Jeff, go. Jeff, go. Go, Jeff. Am I at Tech Droid? Now, uh, now I've lost my tra- train of thought. Put on your broadcast glasses. I got my yeah, broadcast glasses on. Although I do want to point out to whoever wrote this copy, you can't reverse the polarity of neutron flows. <laughs> hey, John Pertwee can, all right? Oh, uh, fine. Well, then, I'll just, you, there's no polarity. Neutrons are neutral. There's uh, 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 Whatever. If you want to talk electrons, then, then we might be able to come up with some science there for reversing the polarity yeah. of electrons, but uh, neutrons are neutral. Let's fire the copyright. Oh, that was probably Lennon. Oh, okay. Oh, well. well, it had a whilst in it, so I'm assuming so. Whilst. Yes, yeah. It, it gives just, it right It away. just sounds good. It's like, It makes good movie text. Personally, I just don't... I'm not going to beat that one. Personally, I just... Oh, sorry. Good. Go, Jace. <laughs> Jace, go. <laughs> Hi, this is... <clears throat> Damn it. 
One second. Somebody make good radio. Sorry. So, uh, 30 seconds. Uh, why is Tony your favorite host, Jeff? Go. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, this is this is our yeah. This is, uh, we will we'll still keep the girl of Ipanema around, but sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, is our is our new good radio. I'm behind the times. I accept my fate. <laughs> All right, cut. <laughs> what makes a man turn neutral?